You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day, all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges, and I'm here with Denise Hearn, advisor, author, and speaker, who works with organizations, asset managers, and companies who want to use their resources to support a more equitable future. Denise is also the co-author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition, named one of Financial Times' best books of 2018. She has also helped launch the first Principles Forum, a platform to support and challenge technology company founders who want to use their wealth for good. Welcome, Denise. Thank you, Gino. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, well, I feel very fortunate to have you join our conversation into uh, Deep Impact. Let us know where uh, you're calling in from today. Oh, I am in uh, Seattle, Washington. Nice. And Canadian, Canadian by birth, which I feel the need to somehow say. Oh, <laughs> uh, nice. And I mean, that's how you probably know our mutual friend, Joel, then at Renewal Fund. Yes, exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yes. Joel's fantastic. Joel's doing great work up there. There's a, there's some beautiful work being done in uh, Vancouver. What part of Canada are you from? Uh, I was born in Toronto, but I actually grew up moving internationally over two or three years. And um, so I think that's, that's uh, definitely influenced my desire to sort of exist at the, at the intersections of different spaces and between worlds and be a translator between worlds. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about that. Let's jump into that in terms of that liminal space. What's it like to be in that liminal space? And what in particular, what spaces are you um, um, exposing the liminality or sort of living in the liminal space? I love that you use the word liminal because that's one of my favorite words. And, uh, <laughs> and actually one of my favorite authors as well, Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan uh, priest, talks a lot about liminality. And they just, they they do like a, I think, a quarterly sort of booklet of different reflections and their most recent one was on liminality. Um, and so it's, it's a concept I've resonated with for a long time, I think, because, you know, yeah, my early experience growing up was, um, like I said, moving quite a bit. We lived in Asia, we lived in the U S we lived in, um, Canada. And, um, and then I also think, you know, I, this money or this conversation is a little bit about, you know, money and wealth and how that fits into personal identity. And I definitely am like a born on third base person that grew up in a lot of privilege. And, um, at the same time, I was really inspired by people that I read about who had really rejected, um, those sort of earthly pleasures, whether that was, you know, the Catholic nuns that I think were the most, you know, fierce independent women of their day, moving to the far flung corners of the world, or, uh, you know, different social justice uh, leaders who had um, really sort of given their all to a greater cause. And so I found myself also in that liminal space of sort of having an experience in my body that um, 
living a life that felt very disconnected from who I perceived that I wanted to be. Um, and it's actually been an interesting journey to sort of come full circle to now embrace that as part of my uh, story and not be, not have shame about that. And also not, um, you know, just, I think there's a, a more deep integration that's happened for me that I'm, you know, I'm still on that journey, but uh, being able to exist in spaces with, you know, with those that have a lot of resources and, and exist in spaces with those that don't and um, try to be a little bit of a conduit for information and, um, and, just holding space, you know, for different perspectives. And then how did you sort of get to the point and feel into that notion of essence? Uh, you talked about not, um, you know, this, uh, growing up on, you know, third base and a certain amount of privilege, and yet you sort of felt that um, disconnect or that um, lack of uh, synchronicity. Was there any particular moment or stream of moments um, or actions that, helped you sort of reconcile that in terms of like, ah, I'm starting to actually feel into myself where I'm not like living multiple existences, uh, you know, but I'm, it's like, I feel like I'm bringing my whole self. I mean, can you take us through that arc a little bit? Yeah, sure. It's such a great question. And, you know, as you and I were talking about before we hit record here, that life is certainly nonlinear. It's much more, you yeah. know, complex, adaptive and, uh, so it's really hard to even sometimes in your own life trace like a very linear story, although that's how we like to tell it because, you know, it sounds yeah. good on podcasts. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think for me, part of it was um, there was like a critical decision point in my life where I had started my early life uh, working predominantly in the nonprofit sector. And I was interested in, you know, I was really interested in sort of like interpersonal transformation. I even considered going to seminary and, um, and like becoming the pastor or something, uh, because I, I was really interested in helping people journey inward and have that be a major source of transformation in people's lives. I think then I started to realize as I went along on my journey that there was this, um, you know, I didn't have the language for it when I was yeah. in my early 20s, but that there's this complex relationship, um, which we also see in the natural world, where there's sort of two flows uh, of feedback, um, both of information, but also of sort of becoming, which is, you know, we as individuals make make choices that that shift outcomes upwards, but then we're also part of systems that also exert pressure and uh, downwards, there's a downward causation that um, causes our behavior in certain ways. And so I became more and more interested in understanding systems. And so I started, um, I worked, you know, for this social impact bond startup right when they were just a thing new, numerous years ago in Canada and, and uh, no one had, had launched one in Canada. So we were trying to do that. Um, and then, you know, I had some mentors really encourage me to go off and get my master's of business. And at first I really resisted that actually. I, uh, I was looking at a master's of human rights from Columbia, which felt much more aligned with, um, my own sort of personal values at the time. But I really made a conscious decision that I said, you know, understanding finance and, um, the, the seat of power that that holds in the world is a really important part of changing systems and you can't change a system you don't understand. Um, and I think probably at a deeper level, there was this like interest in exploring the areas I had previously rejected, uh, you know, in my, in my earlier life. 
Um, and so that was a very conscious decision. So I went off to Oxford and got my MBA there. And, um, and then I ended up working in London afterwards for this macroeconomic research firm that sold to hedge funds and family offices. And, uh, you know, that was like the total antithesis of anything I thought I would ever do in my life. Uh, and I told myself, I mean, frankly, I was kind of desperate. Like I didn't have any other job offers and I wanted to stay in London. And, uh, so I said, okay, well, if I, if I hate it, I'll quit in six months. And, and it ended up being really challenging because it didn't feel integrated with, um, my core value set, but it also was just a huge learning opportunity. I flew all over the world and met the world's top investors and asset managers, um, and it gave me the language, you know, that I needed to understand uh, understand this whole ecosystem. Um, and that's how I met Jonathan, my co-author on the book. And he actually started that company. And so him and I worked closely together. And, you know, as all things then do somehow thread together uh, nicely, occasionally, uh, it, it did feel like the book was a, a synthesis of, you know, some of my earlier explorations. I was also doing a program at the time focused on um, inequality and understanding the structural drivers. And so the book was another sort of, I think, key point in piecing together some of my previous interests. And then I think even since that time, I feel now, uh, since starting my own company and supporting a lot of projects over the last year, um, that I'm even further in sort of in my path of integration of, of understanding where I want to sit in in terms of all of um, these conversations and and how I bring my full self to those those spaces, that was I mean, great. For instance, answer. I hope I yeah. answered that question. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. In terms of integration, uh, do you feel more integrative than um, even when your book was released in two thousand eighteen? Like, was there because often by the time the book is actually printed, you're sort of like almost like okay, I'm sort of done. I'm, I'm already on to my, like, mm-hmm. like, you know, but yet the world is just getting that message from Denise. It's like, she just came out with a book. So, I mean, there's often sort of this weird liminal space mm-hmm. where you just pour yourself into a production of creation and then it gets released to the public. Or as Joseph Campbell would say, you share your boon with the community. You've went mm-hmm. on a journey, but and then the integration part is actually sharing the boon with with the community and hopefully getting feedback from it so that there's a form of acknowledgement. And so one, did that acknowledgement happen in a way that helped you with that integration? And then where it didn't get acknowledged, what resources, what infrastructure resources do you have around you to sort of fill in for that? Because I don't get the impression that you're solely dependent on external confirmation of your work. Um, because any type of critique of a system is going to have its doubters. Um, and so as a result, if, if we literalized uh, cynicism and critique, it would be um, very challenging to do sort of a full integration. So I'm just I'm curious about where, where your work got acknowledged in the way that was helpful and then maybe acknowledged in ways that were misleading. And then two, obviously that was a partiality of the whole of your experience how did you sort of fill it in and say, okay, now I'm moving into this direction? No, it's such an astute question. And I think uh, it's so very true. And now I appreciate that books, I mean, books are very static set in time capsules of where you are in a particular moment. And I actually used to be a musician and I feel the same way about my early recordings. I look back <laughs> and I'm like, oh gosh, you know, it's like, oh, but you have to just appreciate that they were, 
that yeah that they they're these snapshots of who you who you are and who you were at that moment in time um and it's certainly true that just the process of publishing a book is so sort of belabored that by the time you actually get to publishing it you're so sick of your own material but it's just what everybody else is wants you to talk about it um but i would say that you know what was interesting for me with the book is that um my because it was co-authored in some ways you know i obviously stand behind most of the work that we did on the book. Um, in other ways, I think some of the fundamental paradigms that we approach approach the conversation with um, maybe are not fully representative of me and, and certainly where I am today. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to have something that's out there publicly and people associate you and associate that with a comprehensive sort of stamp of, uh, you know, of what you believe or what you um sort of espouse. And, uh, I think, I think now in the last year, because there has been some time since the publication of the book that I've had an opportunity to go on my own journey of really, because what it, what it also did was just raise more questions for me about what I do believe, or, you know, um, I mean, a main one being, what do I think about capitalism as a structure? Do I actually think that it is the most, uh, beneficial structure that we have? Um, and and so it raised questions that I think I've been able to get more clarity on as I've gone along. And certainly the conversations that the book sparked were part of that refinement process for me, that sort of sifting of sand, if you will, to, to get the nuggets that, you know, that are that are there. Um, and and so now I do feel that, uh, yeah, every conversation that I'm in, I, I learned something people correctly challenge my perspective in different ways. They add to it. They subtract things that are not helpful. Um, and that process will happen till the day I die, hopefully. Um, and, you know, but I think, it, yeah, so it, it is interesting to be associated with something that feels like a static representation. Yeah. How do you, um, you know, I mean, the concept the concept of the abstraction of capitalism is uh, what I discovered. You know, my background, I did my PhD in the philosophy of rhetoric. And these titular terms like capitalism, which mm-hmm. try to become sort of these all-encompassing um, uh, symbols for a particular referent, um, they, they actually try to put so much under the tent, it almost becomes a meaningless term at some point. It like It has this paradoxical type of uh, relationship as um, and I guess where I'm going with this is how do you get people to or and how what have you seen in terms of taking it from an uh, a cognitive construct where after you talk about it for an hour or two hours with somebody you feel like you just sort of circled back to the same spot because it's, it's a very sort of almost postmodern move where they're no one's even talking about the referent anymore. They're sort of cutting up in associations with the titular term. Um, Then the term is often politicized, ideologized, incentivized, uh, uh, personalized. I mean, all of these, uh, you know, it, it gets verbed so much that, I mean, one can even sort of like, what are we even talking about here again? Like, what was the original referent? how do you bring people home to say, this is what I'm talking about. And this is really what I want to share with you. And I asked that question because the reason why 
I have moved away from academic modeling of existence and social scientizing our existence is because there's never any talk about the human body as a part of any of these conversations. Mm -hmm. And if I've discovered anything, it's that my body as a channeler is a much more astute governor of my, um, my world around me, my own being and my participation in the world. And it's as if they've disembodied the whole world. There's no earth. There is no uh, earth. Earth is an ESG construct and it's a commodity. How do you bring people home? I mean, you mentioned that you have this, uh, uh, when we're offline, you're talking about this attraction in nature and bio, biomimicry. Um, I understand that you're an active hiker and spend a lot of times outdoors. And yet you're talking about capitalism. It's like, it's, I mean, it's just like one layer below God. I mean, like God is the ultimate titular term. And then it's like capitalism and then democracy and socialism. And it's almost silly at some level. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much to unpack there. So remind me to come back to somatics and and bodies later. Um, But one thing I do want to say about these terms that I thought a lot about is, uh, you know, we have this very dualistic framing of the world constantly, right? So it's capitalism or socialism. And it's completely ridiculous because 99% of the world's economies employ a mixed use economy, which is some variation on the spectrum of those two orientations. And the other thing, you know, is, yeah, when people say capitalism, they think free markets, they think neoliberalism, they think, uh, you know, the invisible hand, What's so interesting is even the conservative think tanks like Heritage Foundation put out, you know, lists of which countries are, uh, you know, the most free every year. And the two countries that top that list are Hong Kong and Singapore. And I've lived in both places. And to for any thinking human being to think that they represent free markets is like completely ridiculous, right? Singaporeans, 80% of them live in state-owned housing. Uh, Singapore has a sovereign wealth fund that invests in many sort of um, state-affiliated companies. You know, they are the world's leader in terms of like social engineering uh, from the government perspective Mm -hmm. in many ways. Uh, So to claim that they have, that they're the second most, uh, you know, sort of admired example of free markets, very strange. Same thing in Hong Kong, where so much of the the market economy there is duopolies uh, that are controlled by oligarchic families that um, also influence the political system, you know, quite heavily. Uh, And so it just, you just have to be intellectually honest, right, about these concepts. And um, I really loved this, this statement from Anand Giratoratis recently, where he said, I can't believe that we're in a place in our society where we have a more nuanced understanding of gender fluidity than we do of economic fluidity, right? Oh, what a great uh, quote. Yeah, it's brilliant. And, you know, this gets back to the sort of embodied nature. And I think, I think to your point, um, we have so separated ourselves um, and over-indexed on cognitive ways of processing the world, um, which, you know, is sort of a largely patriarchal, largely sort of colonize our mindset for the most part. Um, And we've really devalued other ways of garnering knowledge and of perceiving the world. Uh, You know, one of my favorite authors um, and friends is a a Swedish economist named um, Katrin Markal. And she wrote a book called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? And it's this great (laughs) sort of feminist, you know, economics uh, 
tome that that really gets us to remember. I mean, we don't even we don't include the household economy in GDP whatsoever, even though that is the backbone of how every other type of productive uh, economic value is created. And hopefully now during COVID, people understand that where it's like, oh, who's going to watch my kids? Who's going to like unload the dishwasher? You know, mm-hmm. I agree that we we abstract these concepts. And yet we, when, when you come back to a place of like just looking around at, at your own life and seeing where your own body, your own uh, experience of the world um, is really separated from this idea of value and value creation. Um, you know, I think there's just so much to unpack there. And so I've been doing some, a little bit of somatic work and my friend who healed herself through somatics when she had a autoimmune disease and couldn't walk uh, said to me, you know, our minds can lie to us. Our hearts can lie to us, but your body never lies. And if you learn to listen to your body, actually, as you said, it is a much more perceptive, uh, and, and like ironically productive way of moving through the world, uh, because you don't get distracted as easily by things that are, that are actually not useful. Um, and last thing I'll just say on that too is, um, Oh, what was I going to say? Shoot. It's just disappeared. Um, okay. I think it's meant to fly away then. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was very, it it, it had a lot of layers to it in terms of that question. I I wanted, I'm curious on whether um, that what we're talking about here is really a struggle over the body. I mean, to some extent, um, that it's not a question of systems uh, per se, is because, um, you know, one of the claims you make from what I understand is this idea of the concentration of like industry and how that, um, but even if there wasn't concentration of industry um, and even if there wasn't concentration of, uh, say, of industry, I'm curious on whether any economic system that doesn't honor the body and the earth body it doesn't matter whether it's concentrated or unconcentrated. Like even if we had um, just to play a little sort of uh, sort of uh, a counter statement, let's say that, you know, the Googles and Microsofts and all them didn't buy 500 companies over, you know, X period of time and are just sort of everybody's gobbling up everybody. Let's say that that was still like not happening and there was a lot of opportunities for everybody um, it still doesn't change the fundamental concept that those are still extractive, uh, disembodied um, economic practices. And so to me, it's like whether it's concentration, yeah, I get it. I pay more as a result. I have maybe, maybe not me because I, you know, I've hit the ovarian lottery as well, being white, male, educated, and not, you know, having a great upbringing, da, 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 da. So, my odds are improved. But I mean, if I look at it, honestly, it is very challenging for people um, that that don't have ovarian status in order to get in. I mean, the access is less and less. But what may be real more meaningful over the long term is actually a system that doesn't constantly uh, disembody uh, or uh, hollow out people's body and hollow out the earth. And so that's where I'm sort of like sort of interested in wondering, could there be sort of a second edition 
of your book that just says, well, you know, it almost doesn't even matter because even if I got what I want from the myth of capitalism and Google and Microsoft didn't gobble up everybody and, and everybody had access and, and to jobs and so forth, we're still living on a dying planet. Our bodies are still dying um, oh, see, as a collective. And like, do we still want to live? Do I want to live in a world where like, oh, great, everybody has access. There's a deconcentration of wealth going on. But hey, guys, sorry to tell you, but um, your bodies are continually dying because of a variety of reasons. And the earth is dying. So, I mean, just sort of putting out there, I just wonder if that's really the mission. No, I totally agree with you. I think uh, I've been reading a lot of Danella Meadows, who of course is the great systems thinker. And, you know, she says the greatest leverage point for systems change is, um, is actually changing paradigms. But then she says, even above that is transcending paradigms altogether. And those are people like Martin Luther King or Gandhi, who are just able to completely step outside of the matrix of ideas and um, perspectives, you know, that, that we're so entangled in and really show us a new way. And I do think that at the base of this, the idea that we are somehow separate from nature, that we uh, what we don't see ourselves as deeply embedded and interconnected. And um, this isn't some sort of like woo-woo concept. This is completely scientific. And also, uh, it, it if we don't understand this, then we will, then nature's way of dealing with um sort of like aberrations is extinction, right? And I think we, so this is something we need to grasp very deeply. And this is where there's a lot of movement right now, particularly in the impact investment space or the kind of stakeholder capitalism space to do, you know, true cost accounting or impact cost accounting where, you know, on the balance sheet of companies, you're not only going to do the financial um statements, but you're going to, uh, you're going to then also value how much environmental degradation they've caused as an example. And I think this is very attractive on one level because we think, oh, this is great. We're, we're going to start to really understand the true cost of, you know, what we're doing. And then we're going to be able to incentivize people differently. And I just think there's a problem there and I don't know how to solve it, but when you put everything under the tyranny of economic measurement and valuation, it's just, it's missing the point. And, uh, you know, how much is the old growth forest in Washington? How much is that worth to us? Uh, it's, it's completely infinitely valuable. We don't even know. We, we have zero idea with the amount of biodiversity loss that's happening. We don't, there are species we haven't, you know, identified. There are, there's natural intelligence. We haven't even begun to understand like mycelial networks. Um, and, so when we try to place economic value on these things that sit so outside of anthropomorphic ideas mm -hmm. about what's valuable, um, you know, I think that's really, it's like sort of troubling. Um, and so to your point, yeah, I think that there are some very basic fundamental paradigms that sit at the base of all this other proliferation of activity that's happening that really need to be questioned. But once you start doing that, people relegate you to like some crazy corner, you know, and, uh, you know, I mean, I've just finished reading Sacred Economics by Eisenstein and, um, yeah. you know, 
Oh, I'm totally aligned with so much of what he says. But if you walk into any impact investor circle and you say we should do negative interest rates, you know, because usury, building an entire system on usury and interest bearing debt is really problematic. And that's why every major religion outlawed it until 500 years ago. I mean, what do people do with that? You know, like they don't know. They don't know what to do with that. And, uh, you know, it's like even now, I mean, your listeners sound much more progressive, but, you know, even for like leaders in the quote unquote impact investing space, they're unwilling to deal with these kind of questions often. And fundamentally, it's because we still want to maintain power and control, you know, and I was thinking about how, like, even our desire for measurement in the philanthropic space space of like, I want to know that my dollars are really making a difference. And, you know, of course I believe in data. Of course I believe in like all the things, but at the same time to have the presumption and the sort of hubris to think that one foundation or one nonprofit or you as one donor is going to be able to shift systems in a measurable way on a timeline of your choosing it's like complete hubris, right? But it's it's our desire to want to uh, maintain control and power and a sense that, you know, just a sense that we are doing something in the world. And I think, um, you know, ultimately, yeah, I think ultimately it gets down to those, like, where do we even derive our own personal value? Because if we start to question that, then it's, you know, it goes very deep. Um, and so those are the things I think a lot about, but. I only yeah. talk about them here on podcasts where hopefully <laughs> none of my sure. clients are listening. <laughs> Just <kidding. laughs> That's the place for it. You know, I mean, what you talked about there, that reductionist data obsession at all costs, putting everything under sort of an economic model is what I refer to as the grammar of impact mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the poetry of impact. Um, so, I mean, the poetry of impact, I mean, if you looked at in the, in a deeper impact world, we're looking at life, on a continuum of grammar of impact on one side and, and the poetry of impact on the other. And eventually if you bend them down, it's sort of one in the same and it's sort of a yin and yang. It takes both. And mm-hmm. yet it's when somebody um, becomes an evangelist for the grammar of impact, like you talked about the foundation person, do, like it's almost a religious fervor of control um, and and then that's that's where my luminosity meter just starts going. It just like it starts dying. It starts dying because there's no life force in in that model. And mm-hmm. so so part of the reason why I came up with this concept of poetry of impact is because I'm saying what is any system worth if it's not inviting my life force and serving the life force. I am not merely an automaton that's just matter-minded. I, I, am, I, I, am a, I am a permeable piece of flesh with a life force that moves in and out um, based on what it's receiving and what it's considering. And, you know, it's battling ego. It's battling fragility. Uh, that's one in the same, really. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so my intention was... It, in this sort of this, this distinction between grammar of impact, because the impact space is merely doing the same thing as the space that it's trying to, um, you know, seemingly um, do its missionary work on and to convert to the people. It's like, guys, you guys are probably, the, the problem is, is you're using the same damn tools yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. and you're expecting a different outcome. Yeah. 
I go, there's no people in your, I go, where are the people in, in your models? Like there's no people, even the people are dadded. Uh, you know, I just made that up, but I mean, it's sort of like the, and it's that hundred percent evangelical. So I have asked them to just like, when I, whenever I'm in the room and I see that type of evangelism, I, I, I aim to just soften the edges just a little bit and say, guys, we can get out of this. And there's actually a whole invisible world that's working here. Mm-hmm. And that's dynamic. And we have to learn how to trust in that world. And um, what, what you're getting at is, is that I want to end on this note, but um, I did read about your birthday uh, reflections and you're touching on exactly this. Um, you, you know, when you talk about the, the hubris of trying to control life and create certain outcomes and at the beginning of the year. So I'm guessing your birthday is somewhere in early January, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. You uh, wrote in an article in Medium that uh, today's my birthday and I have some reflections and paradoxes I have come to, uh, you know, focus on. Some of the paradoxes you mentioned was like, I'm utterly insignificant yet infinitely valuable. And you have a list of these. It's like my work and efforts are meaningless, and yet how we spend our lives matters. Let's just talk about this idea of paradox. I mean, how do you get up? I, you know, I mean, you're a recognized author. People are uh, asking you to help them transition to a new economy, uh, uh, you know, essentially. I mean, to a lot of what we want the world to be, a, a more uh, verdant, a more equitable world. And yet it's just full of paradox. How do you hold paradox? I mean, how do you sort of use it? Or how does paradox use you? Hmm. I I think going full circle to the beginning of our conversation, I think having a lot of experiences growing up um, that were seemingly sort of disparate, I think made me comfortable with paradox in a way that maybe others are not. Um, And I always challenge myself, like when I feel myself getting too comfortable or too staid in my own perspective, I'm constantly looking for the edges of of where I'm not seeing something or, um, you know, yeah, I don't want to get too comfortable. And I think that's partially endless curiosity, but it's partially fear uh, of becoming too deeply entrenched in, you know, my own way of seeing the world, which I know is very flawed and um, incomplete in many ways. And so I think with paradox, um, I don't know. I just, I find paradox like deeply comforting in some strange way where you can acknowledge exactly like I did that, uh, yeah, that it's sort of like I get up every day and there's this, you know, in the scriptures in Job, there's sort of this like refrain about meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And I feel that often. I feel that my efforts, my, um, my work, I'm just, you know, zooming out. I'm one of 7 billion plus people on a planet that will be here and gone in an instant. And so for me to think that I will do anything useful (laughs) in the world uh, that meaningfully advances, you know, us um, is, is a challenging concept. But at the same time, knowing that every human being is unique and I believe sort of um, divinely gifted uniquely and um, that it's the task of all of us to one of my favorite authors, also Parker Palmer, a Quaker, um, Mm -hmm. Quaker author. And he says, you know, 
he says, before you tell your life what you're going to do with it, you have to ask it what it wants to do with you and let, let your life speak. And so the task of all of us is really trying to find what our life wants to speak in the world. And I think that's, that is the point. I think that's the most meaningful journey. And I don't think it often looks like anything that we think it will look like. Um, and the things that I find, you know, all of these things, the accolades or the book or whatever, it's like, I don't actually think that that, that doesn't feel like my real work in, in a way. I think um, my real work happens when I feel <laughs> that, and it only happens once every couple of years, even potentially, when I feel like I authentically create and initiate something into the world that feels like it comes from a, a deep place inside of me that feels very authentic and true. And um, sometimes that comes forth in writing. Sometimes it comes forth in um, other ways. It also comes forth in just the relationships. And even physicists yeah. and other scientists now talk about at the base of everything, there's this, they talk about it as relationships, right? And connections and energy. And um, so I think all systems are simply, you know, relationships and networks of information flow and energy flow, um, according to the scientists. And so when we're able to sort of tap into that in a meaningful way that feels authentic to us, that feels like where the real work happens. Thank you, Denise. I'm here with Denise Hearn. Uh, co-author of The Myth of Capitalism and so much more, uh, advisor and speaker uh, who works with a lot of organizations. And, but what I really mean by so much more is, is that, I mean, all of that stuff is your LinkedIn persona. And after this, you know, 45-minute exploration into uh, your who-ness, uh, we've discovered and others will discover that um, it's okay it's, it's okay to have a lot of little selves working in the village on your behalf. And, um, and it's also okay to be uh, out in front on things and to recognize that um, life can feel nihilistic at times, even when you're doing great work. And that was, that's largely the intention is this collective body of voices coming together who all have very, um, prominent front-facing personas in their particular space, we realize that behind it is, is that um, more of us can join join journeys if we actually see the wholeness and uh, people being authentic because then that's where people can see themselves, right? I mean, we can't see each other um, often if we're just sort of comparing our achievements because they're always going to be out achieving us, or we're always going to look at those people that are out achieving, but we mm -hmm. all have these archetypal patterns. Uh, we all have them. The details may change, but there is a consistency across the human experience. And there's a particular consistency amongst those people also that are working in the money world um, and working on trying to bring intentionality to the money world. So thank you so much for joining us today, Denise. Oh, this was my honor and joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.
Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. 